We begin the book of Joshua this evening. We, um, in essence, sort of began the book in regards to an overview and an introduction last week to get a kind of feel for the book. Uh, this week, God willing, we actually get into chapter 1. So go ahead, and if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, please. And once you get that Bible, please open it up to the book of Joshua. It's the sixth book of the Bible, chapter 1. Pray with me right away, if you would, please, and let's jump in. Lord, thank you so much for the blessing of your presence. Thank you for the things you're going to do tonight here as we open your word. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of, of, of this evening and all you have planned. And I pray, Lord, that every one of us, for everything you've ordained this time to be, it would be that and even more to the good. Lord, that we would genuinely find ourselves face to face with you as we should be and overwhelmed with your goodness. Lord, lead us this evening to a beautiful place in you. Let your scripture burst open and come alive for us in such a way that we will grab a hold of it and adhere it adhere to it, Lord, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So speak to us individually and captivate us as we hear your voice. Captivate us in your word and may we have so much fun as we open it and walk through your word now. Redeem every second, Lord, I pray. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any night, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible be the authority for which you attest and hold all things to be true or false. Joshua, in essence, if you think about it, is kind of like the book of Acts of the Old Testament. I mean, we have the four Gospels in the New Testament teaching us the standard, if you will, of Jesus his life, his death, his resurrection, and then the challenge to go and live that out as Christians, as disciples, as servants. And we see that lived out in the book of Acts. In the Old Testament, the books begin with what we call the Torah, or the teaching, or the Pentateuch, the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in which, of course, God builds and establishes a people just like Jesus did, if you will, in the Gospels. He sets a group apart a group of people just like Jesus does in the Gospels. So does Moses, God through Moses, do then in the Torah, in which he lays out a law, a standard for which Jesus will also do in the Gospels, and then challenges to live it out even as Jesus does in the Gospels. And in the book of Joshua, we see that happening now, claiming the land, taking the land. Which, by the way, I like that because I know there's a lot of really cool old Gospel songs that usually start with like a that kind of thing. And they're going to go to Canaan town, going to go to Canaan town. And it always seems like it refers to, you know, like there's always that going to go to Canaan town. And it gets me moving. 
It gets me wanting to do laps. But it usually refers to heaven. And, and i got to be honest with you. There's like giants and battles and failures. And man, if that's heaven, we're all in trouble. So when I look at Canaan, this place to be taken that God has promised, can I just say it this way? Let me challenge you. Like the book of Acts, God has this place planned. Here's this place for you where you step into and live the abundant life that he promises in the Gospel of John chapter 10. Jesus, and we know this, many of us inherently, we know that the whole point of it is that Jesus has called us to more than not just be dead. He's called us to so much more than just not, well, let's, let's not be as horrible as we used to be. But now he calls us to live a life abundant, a life that where joy overflows and peace beyond our understanding and a love that is selfless, that is contradictory to the world as we know it. I mean, we basically are the opposite of what we used to be. And that place where he's called us, I'll be honest, many Christians will never really know, though it's available to everyone who said yes to Jesus Christ. And the reason is, is that somewhere down the line, the wilderness just becomes our home and we just live there. We won't by faith walk forward to that place where God calls us to be more than just a follower, but ultimately a leader. Joshua, by the way, now roughly 100 years old, somewhere between 90 and 100, will die at 110 at the end of this book, has now has to step up as a leader. And he has to lead a second generation. Joshua and Caleb are the only two guys that still have the scars, the whip marks on their back from Egypt. Think that through. And if you look at it from that direction, they're the ones who can tell you how horrible Egypt was. They can tell you how rough Egypt was. The rest of them, they were kind of kids at best. They really didn't know. And now here we are in this place where we're staring at the river we said no to 38 years ago. At this point, somewhere roughly about a quarter of a mile wide, because it's the spring where things over and abound. It's the time of the, the early floods. And, and I've got to tell you, as we get ready to look at this, it's been, it's been a really fun walk with the Lord through this. And part of it, to be honest, is asking, Lord, as I am placed in this city of London, as you are placed in this city of London, how are you going to approach it? And even before we get into the text, and what we're going to see in this text is that God makes four promises to Joshua and those people, which I really genuinely believe we all can claim today if we're willing to follow him as he tells us here. But I realize as I look in the Old Testament and I think, up to this point, who has actually entered into a country not theirs yet? A country very different than where they came from. And I think of Abraham, who, by the way, not just going through Canaan, but if you remember, enters into Egypt due to actually a famine, a precursor, by the way, to what we'll see with Joseph. But what's interesting with Abraham, if you think about it, is when Abraham got to Egypt, he shriveled up. He was intimidated by Egypt. I mean, after all, Egypt was very structured. It was very established. It was the place that seemed to be flourishing. Obviously, he and his tribe was not at that point. And you know what? He, he almost lost his family for him. 
I mean, his wife was given over to Pharaoh. And by the way, that's on more than one occasion, by the way, that he'll shrivel like that. And I ask, well, what about you or what about me? Am I in a place tonight when I look at this where, to be honest, am I like Abraham when I'm placed in a place like this that my attitude, to be honest, is, wow, when I shrivel up? Would I be such in a place where I'd be silent about Jesus because I know that that offends? Would I be in a place where I would actually be fearful to actually be who God's called me to be, to not shine the light that He's called me to because I know if I do that there will be enemies that will be made? Am I that kind of person? Am I going to be that kind of person to shrivel up? Well, do I want to lose my family over it? And I'll be honest, that is about the greatest threat you can make to me other than my own salvation. And I look at Abraham and think, I don't want to be like that. And then I look at Lot, who, by the way, was also entering into a place that was different from where it came from. I want to remind you that the reason that Lot separated in the first place was because Lot actually was a shepherd. If you remember, so was Abram, and they were together, but the two of them were so prosperous. They both had so many animals that they couldn't hang out together anymore because there wasn't enough land to sustain them. So the two of them, two different shepherd guys with a bunch of sheep and such, you know, they were ranchers, had to separate so they could both get different lands. That makes sense. What's so part of, sort of surprising is, at first what we read is that this, this guy, Lot, that he takes his family and they head into the, uh, the area of the Sodom, the Sodom, sort of, if you will, the salty area today, but so, the, sort of the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, it was a very lush and verdant valley. So if we think of it from the perspective of the outskirts, it actually would make a little bit of sense. The problem is, is that, well, that Lot doesn't actually stay out in the field, does he? Lot heads into the city. And I'd like you to consider the fact that the guy's a shepherd. What in the world is a shepherd going to do in a city with a sheep? He's going to have to lose them. It isn't like there is a place that's that pet friendly in a city. Not only does Lot lose his flock, if you will, he also loses his wife. And I, and I can't help but think the difference between Abram. Abram may have sort of, if you will, Abram may have sort of shriveled up and kind of got cowardly, if you will, when he kind of went into Egypt. And, and for good reason, if his eyes weren't on the Lord. And maybe that's a struggle you have. I know that that's a temptation in all of us. But, but Lot took it a step farther. And what Lot did is actually Lot blended in. Lot blended in at least as much as though that he could be sort of have his own place there among all of the rest of the people. And he may have thought, and please hear me on this, Christian, he may have thought he really blended in until he actually had to make a judgment call. And if you remember, the people are like, hey, who is this foreigner think he is trying to tell us what to do? And by the way, can I say as a Christian, welcome to the world of being a dork to the rest of the world. And maybe you've never been, maybe you've always been one. Congratulations, it's a very small step for you. But for some of you, maybe you've really felt like you were really popular, and then you've sort of become a Christian, and you want to try to fit in again with the same people, but you're not that same kind of cool anymore. And what happens is those people aren't inviting you to the same things you used to go to, for good reason, because you'd be the party pooper. And you think, man, but I want to be asked. Oh, I, I would say no, which sometimes we might. Many times we wouldn't, though we'd think we would. But man, it's like, you know, the, here's the problem. The moment you said yes to Jesus, and let me make that clear, Jesus died on a cross for your sins, just like mine, rose again on the third day. And the moment you say yes to that gift and payment, accepting him as Savior and Lord, he puts his Holy Spirit inside of you. And the Holy Spirit, hear me on this, starts making you a word we use in church called holy. 
Some of you are familiar with it. But do you realize what the word holy simply means? It means weird, different, unique. It's what the word means. And that's the point. And I don't mean that in any irreverent manner. Get to the idea that when we stand before Jesus in heaven, what we're going to realize is you are so different than anything I've ever seen, than anyone I've ever known. That's what we kind of come to the conclusion. Today we kind of almost make it like Jesus, my homeboy. You know, man, like me and Jesus, we kind of like walk down the street. You know, like, yeah, how's it going? Jesus, sup? And Jesus looks and goes, sup, tone. Well, listen, Jesus is so much more than that. And He is holy and He is infinite and He's all loving, but He's also all righteous and all pure. And we need to recognize that. So here's the problem. The moment you said yes to Jesus, the Spirit of God inside of you starts changing you making you unlike the world. But the problem is you're trying to look like the world, which means you are fighting the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's the weird part about it. And some of you know this because you know the battle you fight. It's like, you know, I'm try- I just want to be part of that crowd. And that's like God saying, you know what? Why do you want to take it on the Titanic? I just want to hang out with the people at Titanic. I just want to be one of them. They're going to die. I got you off the boat and you're swimming back. What are you doing? And understand, there's the weird part of someone like Lot. I mean, Lot gets to the point where he actually tells his kids, come on, you guys, this angel spoke to me. We need to get out there like, oh, Dad, what are you doing? Oh, come on, seriously? And I get it. See, when you're so busy blending in and then you try to tell someone about Jesus, they kind of look and say, well, how is he different? And you've so tried to make him like everything else that they don't see anything different in you. Is that kind of a weird thought? I think, you know, what's weird is that God really wants to make you weird. Now, not weird like put an aluminum foil on your head and try to avoid gamma rays and just kind of walk around and talk to yourself in your storefront window. God wants to make you very different in the sense that when the rest of the world is dead spiritually, you're living. You look very different in the morgue. You're the one thing animated. That's the way that works. You're the one thing not rotting. So when the, when the world's best moment is all about good circumstances, and, and so that means that the moment those circumstances are bad, their day is bad, and we tend to think, well, that must be the way I should do it too. But actually, because he doesn't change and he's the reason I have joy, actually, the worst moment circumstantially could still be one of my best days. And understand that we can't afford to be like a lot either. And you know this. The church has had enough time looking like the rest of the world. I don't blame the world for not wanting to come in here because they don't think there's anything different. And we're like, well, you know, we need to be more like the world so we could build a bridge. Actually, why don't we be so unlike the world, I mean, so much like Jesus, that we're weird to them? Because you know this. Every time someone's weird, everybody looks. You know, some guy just starts barking or clucking or something. Everybody's going to check him out for a moment. Maybe out of the corner of their eye or out of the, you know put their Kindle down just enough if they're fearful. But sooner or later, they're going to check it out. And the world's trying to look like everything. The church is trying to look like the rest of the world. The world kind of looks and goes, oh, you look like everything else. Why would they want anything beyond that? And so I look and I think, Abraham, he kind of shriveled up. And then I look at someone like Lot and he just kind of blended in. Oh, but then there's this guy. You see, when Joshua takes a look at Canaan, Joshua doesn't take a look at Canaan and thinks, oh man, I really need to shrivel up here, though he's clearly fearful. I look at him and I don't think it's time to blend in. He actually instead seeks to bring change. 
And my challenge is that God's called you and me to bring change. So I look at this chapter now, and God actually has some beautiful, beautiful things. But here's the problem. Egypt looked like security and provision to Abraham. And maybe that's what you think of the world right now. Sodom looked like comfort and pleasure. And maybe you're driven by comfort and pleasure right now. Maybe the reason why it's hard to actually do what the Lord's called you to is because your couch looks so dang good. And Canaan, well, there's all of these promises that God wants to fulfill, but there are battles to be fought to see them. And maybe you just don't want to see the fight. And now here we are looking at a place where there's going to be no more man to follow, no more manna to eat, no more manifestation of a pillar or a cloud. We're going to say goodbye to our tents, the tents of the wilderness, the tensions of the wilderness, and if you will, the tendencies to look back in the wilderness. Oh, we're going to say goodbye to all of those things. And now it's time to step up and lead. But you can't lead if you're following, right? Unless you're following Jesus and leading others. The reason I say that is if you're trying to look like the rest of the world, how are you going to lead when you're swimming with the rest of them just like that? So verse 1. Hey, look at we got there. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying the obvious. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, get up, arise. Go over the Jordan, you and all his people, to the land I am giving them, the children of Israel. And this is where we start this. God told Moses that he was to walk up Mount Nebo. That was at the end of Deuteronomy. And so we watched Moses walk up. And he didn't walk down. Here's the problem. Moses has walked up mountains before. And he's been gone quite a while in some of those mountains. And we know how stupid it is when we say, Oh, that Moses guy, he hasn't come back for 40 days now. You know, things are looking pretty rough. Let's make a golden calf. We know the mistakes we've made from that. But imagine, if you will... Moses has gone up and finally God... And Joshua knows he's next in command. God's already made that clear. Moses has already laid hands on him. He's inaugurated him in front of all of the people. It's been clear and evident. But now it's like all he's waiting for is the clear command from God. And that's, by the way, a really good time to step up and not sooner is when you hear the Lord tell you. And the Lord says, listen, Moses is my servant is dead. Now it's your turn, pal. And can I say this, beloved? As God has called every one of you to lead. Now, that doesn't mean you dominate, commandeer, or be bossy or pushy. But it does mean, as we lead first, by going somewhere. You're aware of that, right? You can't really lead without going somewhere. All you can be is a commando without going somewhere. But if you're going somewhere, you're going to lead. Where are you going? But can I say, you really... Well, let me say it this way. The prerequisite is death. If you're genuinely going to lead God's style. Well, let me tell you what has to die. The old generation, the old man in you is going to have to die. Because the old selfish, self-centered, self-driven, self-esteeming person 
has to die so we could pick up God esteem. We could find our validation in Him so we never have to find it in another human being. We can rest in His love and follow Him. But that's not the only thing that has to die. Not only death to the old man, but death to the one you followed. You see, really, there are no second generation leaders of, of, of the body of Christ. And this becomes a dangerous thing. What you find is there's a person that really loves God and he's following God and then someone else says, look at how that man's following God. I'm going to follow God like that guy follows God. But if you follow God like that guy follows God, you'll get him out of the way sooner or later. Now, I'm not saying you don't listen or enjoy or whatever. What I'm saying is there is no second generation. You've got to hear from God yourself. Could you imagine if your leader, whoever is like, could you imagine me or whoever it would be that's seeking to lead you to Jesus goes, hold on, let me check with some other guy first. Wouldn't that be disconcerting? How many people do you want in that little game of telephone? And I can tell you that was the problem with the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. And it's the same problem you'll find in a lot of guys today that usually have a lot of letters before or after their name. And I'm not trying to pick on education because that's not the point. But you get the idea where they'll say, well, look at, you know, we read this text and what we find is this dead guy from 500 years says this and this dead guy from 600 years says this and this guy that just died says this. But it's like, yeah, but what has the Lord told you? And they're like, I don't know. I'm still busy sorting through dead people. You know, and what happens is, it's like, hey, bless the Lord for Spurgeon, and bless the Lord for Chuck Smith, and bless the Lord for Billy Graham, who I believe is still living, and bless the Lord for these guys who are, but if we're going to follow their example, follow Jesus like they did. In other words, don't get anyone else in the way. Let it be you and him, because if you're going to lead others, you've got to have to hear from the Lord, because I guarantee you, there's going to be enough people checking you on those decisions. You're going to have to know the Lord spoke. And they're like, who do you think you are to say that? And did you really think that was God? It's like, look, you have to be confident and say, you know what the Lord told me. And one of the best ways to do that is to be in His Word, like we are tonight. Because when you're in His Word, you can say, I know this is God's Word. And because of that, I know that He said this, because He said it right here. It's amazing when you talk to someone and go, I just want to read God's mind. And I'm like, you can. It's in a book. He put it for you. You can read His mind anytime you want. And I get the idea here that, see, God's not being insensitive. See, there's that point where there's kind of the elephant in the room. Are we, is, is Moses going to come down from this or not? And God's like, hey, listen, buddy. Moses, my servant, is dead. We've resolved that. So now it's your turn. Let's get up and let's go. And can I say, look, it, that doesn't mean that you just have to you just completely remove people out of your life unless, it's entire, unless they're an obstacle. What that means is, do you have a personal walk with Jesus tonight? I'm not talking about are you a member of a church. God isn't into group reservations. It isn't like let's get all the Baptists over here and the Pentecostals over here where we can get loud and let's get, you know, the Calvary Chapel people, I don't know where to stick you guys. We'll stick you in the middle somewhere. Is that what we're looking for? My shepherd calls his sheep by name. Aren't you thankful? And I like that because I have a hard enough time hearing my own name being called nonetheless some group that I feel like I'm roughly associated with. You know, it was Joshua. It's time for us to go. But notice how he starts filling this full of promise. He says, listen, go over and cross the Jordan, you and all the people to the land I'm giving them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I have said to Moses. This is the first of four beautiful promises. And let me just give you a simple word. And I challenge you again, believe it or not, search the scriptures, the words authority. Now, here's the weird part. 
if I'm going to live in that old generation, me first mindset, authority makes me look good. Before I knew Jesus, we want authority because we feel like it validates us. But can I say this, and please hear me on this, God is a God, a very balanced and orderly God. He does not give responsibility without the authority to accomplish it. And he does not give authority without a responsibility to it. A person that has all responsibility and no authority is going to dry up and die. Have you seen people like that? One of my old pastors was gone for a summer, went back to the, to the church he had gone to before. This poor guy went back to start a worship team for the, for the college group, for the university group. But you know who, who was, he had no choice in who was going to be in it because there were already people prepared, including his ex-girlfriend and her boyfriend. You can imagine how rough that was. Every time he's like, no, we need to do it this way, the guy's like, no. Who died and made you boss? That was kind of the attitude. The poor guy tried so hard. He had all this responsibility, but he had no authority. He'd call me and he'd be like, what would you do? And I'd say, I tell you what you'd do. Kick those guys out and just start with you and a guitar. People will actually see the unity in that. He's like, I can't. I'm like, you don't even have the authority. And have you ever been in a place where people have given you so much responsibility, but you don't even have the authority to accomplish it? On the other side of it, what happens if you get all authority and no responsibility? You become a jerk. Let's just be honest. You just tell everyone to do everything, but you don't even know why. And the reason I say that is when God says, now listen, what if you put that promise before you and he said, Daniela, every step you take, I'm going to give you that land. What would you do? My guess is I'd head to places I really like and I'd run. I would walk a lot. How about you? I go, well, let's start in London, and I'm just going to start walking. And people go, I'm just going to walk. I'm walking. This is my land. This is going to be my land. This is going to be my land. Oh, I'm going to walk over here because, oh, I like this. I like this. And I mean, think about it. And here's the point. God's like, I'm going to give you this authority. This is the part I'm asking you to do. You tell me to get that. What's the one thing you're going to have to do? It's going to be really difficult. Walk. Did you get that? Imagine if he's like, every step I, that you take, I'm going to give you the land. And you're like, well, then I might as well just kick up my feet. Do you not want the land? And God says, look, that's why it's a Christian walk, beloved. It's like, here's the funny part. We kind of go, well, I just want to take my stance, and I'm going to defend. God's like, it is time, beloved, to get on the offense. It's like, we're like giving up ground. Have you noticed this? It's like, we don't want to use these words because it'll alienate the word, world. So we don't want to use the term like born again because they don't know what that means. But have you learned every term the church gives up, the world just takes and redefines? Have you noticed that? It's like the world's like, oh, well, I'll take that then. Thank you very much. And I'm like, you know what? It's time to take it back. People go, are you religious? And we're like, oh, no, 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 I'm not religious. I just have a relationship. Religious means, in the most base sense, it actually just means devoted. I want to be the most religious guy you ever met. But I want to be devoted to Jesus. It's like, you know, I, I met some people out there that are psychotically religious to their cause that will turn to me and say, are you religious? And I love to say, yes, I am. And so are you. We just happen to have very different religions at the moment. And hear me on this. Here's our first promise. God's like, I want to give you authority, but I want you to walk. I want you to walk with me. Follow me. And isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus didn't just say, think about me, and then walked away. Imagine, imagine. Think about me. And then he found Nathaniel. Hey, Nathaniel, think about me. He said, follow me to Philip. Philip finds Nathaniel. Nathaniel goes, 
what, Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth? Really? Does anything good come from there? And it wasn't like he argued. What he said is, why don't you just come and see for yourself? I'm going to follow him. Why don't you follow him and see for yourself? Could you imagine? And the Lord's like, look, I really want to give you great, great authority. But if, that, if I'm going to give you authority, it's going to come with a responsibility. And the responsibility is, I want you to bring change to the world that I'm putting you in front of you. So when you start to walk, the world sees a difference. So you can't just shrivel up or blend in because it's not going to work that way. Joshua's not going to do that, the shrivel up and blend in part. And that's the first of the promises. And notice, by the way, what it says in regards to that. He says, verse 4 gives us our, our landlines, if you will. From the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the, Euver, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea of the going down of the sun shall be your territory. Now, I'd like to show you a map of what that looks like, by the way. So you could see the land that God has just spoken as a promise to Joshua. Lauren, will you flash that up? Or Daniela, will you flash that up, please? Because here is the point of this, friends. Do you see this property here? I want to show you. When God says all the way to the river Euphrates, all the way down to the setting, going of the setting sun, so this then becomes our western border. And he walks us down. This is our southern tip. Our southwestern tip, southeastern tip. This is it. This is the land of Israel today. The land that if we went just about right here would be the land in its greatest. Let me kind of put things into perspective for you if I could. The promised land that God speaks of here in verse 4, well, it's, well, let me say it this way. Israel today. The land of Israel, and this is generously giving all of the property that is sort of in it, that would be the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, all the areas that really, in all honesty, isn't necessarily really Israeli territory. But just the same, if we just kind of took that and boxed in all of that area, now that means that we kind of include like this area here, and we include some area here that we would not necessarily claim. Well, the total of that, by the way, is 8,019 square miles. Now, that may not mean much to you, but let me kind of put it in this way. In the day of, uh, of David and Solomon, when the kingdom was at its largest, it was at 13,000 square miles. Now, of the land that God has promised, today Israel occupies 2.6% of it. In the biggest moment with David and Solomon, they actually had, well, at that point, 4% of the property. Let me put it this way. Today, the United Kingdom... If we took the surface area, that's all of the area of Northern Ireland. That's the area of uh, Scotland, Wales, and England. The total mass of that area, surface area, is 94,000. I'm sorry, 94,525 square miles. Which means if we were to take the Israel today and compared it to the United Kingdom, we could fit over 12 Israels in the United Kingdom. That gives you an idea of its size. 
in its biggest day, we could fit over seven of Israel in the United Kingdom. But if Israel was to assume all the land promised here in verse 4, we could fit three and a half United Kingdoms in Israel. As a matter of fact, the land that God promised is almost exactly the same amount of land mass today as Turkey. And that's the land God promised. And the reason I say that is, you know, to be honest, today it's roughly about the size of Wales. To give you an effect, oh, give or take about 10 miles, 10 square miles. It's about the same as the area of Wales. Now, the reason I say that is this, is that could you imagine God actually looking and saying, I'm going to give you, and he's speaking to an individual who's going to lead a group of people, but could you imagine having an impact on that much property? I mean, imagine if God were just going to say, I mean, so what would be the big deal if God said, Bruno, I'm going to use you to transform London. London? 809 square miles? London? Imagine. It's like, angel, I'm going to use you to transform England. You get it? Henry, the United Kingdom. While we're at it, just for fun, Daniel, let's add in Israel. Well, let's add in actually Italy and France. Let's get them both in there because they still fit and we're still comfortably well within our property value area. Could you imagine? And we think, oh God, could you really use me at all? I mean, God, could you use me to maybe touch somebody at my work or somebody that, you know, maybe I see the same person at the Starbucks every day. And I'm thinking, oh God, could you use me a little bit? And God says, listen, boy, if you're going to get with me and it's you and me now, you're following me, I'm going to be with you just the same way that I was with Moses. If you're going to follow me, you're going to lead others and you're going to touch so many people, you won't even recognize the amount of people you'll be able to touch. But you're going to need to follow me to do that. And I look at this and I think, man, that at the greatest moment, all they've ever seen is 4% of God's promise here. He's like, this is land. All I'm asking you to do is walk with me. And if you walk with me, I'm going to give it to you. And we're going to have all kinds of authority here because the authority is in him. Then we get to verse 5, and here's our second promise. In verse 5, it says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Not only did God promise authority, he also promises victory. And this becomes the problem is that often we see some people and we kind of look and we're almost angry or bitter because we have these internal struggles and we know it's like it's, it's gambling or it's drugs, it's drink, it's pornography, it's bitterness, it's gossip, it's fear, it's whatever it is. And we kind of look at this and we see the person next to you, you know, to us and we're there and they're like, oh, we've got the victory! You know, and we're watching this and we're like, oh, I hate you. You know, because somehow maybe they probably have all that, but I don't, and I should be singing like that. What's wrong with me? But what's the difference? Well, first of all, chances are they're having their own battles, too. They're just actually claiming what God told them. But can I just say, part of it again is, is getting to that place where it's you and the Lord first, because that's where real victory is found. 
It's not going to be found in you. And then there's the pastor. And then there's a bishop. And then there's this guy. And then maybe a guy with a pointy hat. And then maybe sort of after the sort of 16 different people and the steps you've taken, you get to God somewhere and all of that. Man, look at Maybe you were led to the Lord by your father or your mother or by a youth pastor or whatever. Praise the Lord for those vehicles. But let me remind you, don't worship the bus. Get to your destination. Now, that's rough to say on a day like this when there's a strike before us, but we get the point. And, and the reason I'm saying that is, is that when God says, <coughs> listen, I want to let you know, I didn't say you will be absent of battles. I didn't say you would be absent of the fight. What I promised is victory. So here's the deal. You're going to need to keep your eyes on me. You're going to, when you keep your eyes on me, you're going to walk on top of things you never thought you could. Peter, go overboard. See what happens, boy. Hey, let me remind you, when Peter was walking on water, it was not Lake Placid. The storm was still raging. The the waves were still coming. The water was still swelling. The wind was still boisterous. The point was not God stilling the water at that point. The point was not removing the storm. The point was when Peter stepped out with his eyes on Jesus, the storm was underneath him. That's the point. Do you remember when Jesus tells us about the wise man builds his house upon the... Thank you. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. And he tells us in both cases, the issue is not just hearing God's word, but acting upon it. And he tells us that the winds came, the rains came down, and the floods came up. And he tells us in both cases the rains came. In both cases the winds blew. In both cases the floods came. And the reason I say that is that God did not promise no rain to the ones who built their house upon the rock. God did not promise no wind to those who built their house upon the rock. God did not promise no floods to those who built their house upon the rock. The difference is God promised the house would stand. And can I say for you, beloved, that the beauty of following Christ and doing as He calls us to is that we get the privilege of actually knowing when a storm comes, we're like, this house is not going to fall. It's like, look at, no matter who's going to stand against you, you're victorious. I'm giving you victory, but you're going to have to keep your eyes on me and you're going to have to follow me. The battle is there. So, we start with authority, we go to victory, and then he continues to move us forward. Look at what it says then in verse 6. As a result of that, be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land in which I swore. I've already promised this, you're going to get it. In the New Testament, we read it this way. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it or will complete it for that day in Christ Jesus. God knows if he's begun it, God never quits. And the reason is God knew the whole project when he started. See, the difference between God and anybody else is God actually knows everything. So when he starts a project, he actually knows the cost, the length, the time, and the effort that will be necessary. So be strong. And very courageous, verse 7, that you may observe to do all according to the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, hear me on this. This is our third promise that God lays out here. Our first promise, again, I remind you, was authority. Our second promise is victory. But the third one's a dangerous word, and that is prosperity. 
And the reason it's a dangerous word is because remember how the old generation, the old man has to die to receive God's promises the way he wants? Is there anything inherently beautiful about a five-pound bill? Or is there anything inherently more beautiful about a 20-pound bill? 20-pound note than a five-pound? Well, there's one thing that says 20 instead of five, right? That makes it prettier. What makes it so desirous to people? Because people believe if they get enough of those, they could be liked, they could be important, maybe they'll have a little bit of purpose, maybe they'll have a little bit of power. And so what happens is some people actually have the nerve to try to say that what God really wants to do is give you money. And they think that that's the best prosperity God would ever give you. Can I say there was a time in my life that I had an awful lot of money and I was the most miserable? At a time in my life where I was more popular than I ever wanted to be and I was infinitely miserable. Perhaps you've heard it said this way. I've heard it just recently said this way. That God loves you so much that without Him you can fail and be miserable or worse yet, you can succeed and be miserable. Because you can't find peace with anything this world has to offer. And the reason is everything of this world is temporary. That's the problem. No matter what it is, you've just got the new Bentley, you got the new house, you got the whatever, and you're like, man, I got it. And then someone steals your Bentley, your house catches fire. And the whole problem is everything you had can be gone this quick, but you can't steal my Jesus. And in his presence is the fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I love that. When Jesus says, look at, when I raise again, I will give you a joy no one can take. So don't you dare tell me Satan stole your joy. Because he can't. You can try to trade it. You can try to give it away. But he can't steal it. But Jesus says, I locked that up in you. And here's the point, beloved. Is that when Jesus says, look at, this is the requirement, though. You really want to prosper, but you want to prosper at the things I put in your heart, not your own. I've already validated you at the cross. I've already shown you you are important. I already offer you peace and joy and love. And if you already know I offer you those things without having to pay for them with some easy method of payment and all these other things, if you really realize that I offer you those things and you can finally resolve that you're important in my eyes and I'm the only one who knows everything about you, I know everything about you and I want you anyways. If you knew everything about you, you wouldn't want you. But God's like, I'm so unintimidated by everything you are because I love you beyond that. And if you knew that, then I want to prosper you in a way that makes makes an eternal difference. I want to prosper you in a way that you set your hands and lives are changed. Communities are changed. People are changed. Suicidal people find hope. And addicts find freedom. But first and foremost, lifeless, dead souls find the God of life. That's the point. And he goes, this is what you need to do. You're going to need to listen to me. God's speaking. And I don't want you going left, and I don't want you going right. And I get it. Right by the way, and by the way, it's interesting because when a king sat down on his throne, there was always somebody who sat to his left and there was always someone who sat to his right. The person who sat to his left was his counselor, his recorder, because he was the guy that wrote his history. And therefore, when he asked advice, he usually asked it from this guy because he was the guy who knew the most about what went on so far. The guy on the right is the guy who gets the job done. That's what we call it, like my right-hand man. That's why, for instance, when we read that when Jesus 
died on the cross and rose again, he ascended and sat down at the right hand of the Father. He got the will of the Father done, which was paying for us. How amazing is that? Why does he sit down? Because the job's done. Until then, you're standing. When the job's done, you know that. When the job's done, you sit down you're like, ah. That's why I look at my children and when they're trying to get something done and they want to sit down, I'm like, don't sit down yet. Finish the job. But the guy on the left, on the other hand, that's your counselor. And I get it. I'm listening to God's word and what can happen is I could get so caught up in just trying to do stuff I don't listen. Or I could be so caught up in getting counsel from someplace other than God's word. And this is what I've learned. That one of the most dangerous, we live in the most dangerous uh, society we've ever lived in because we live in the age of information. You know what that means? And God promised us this, by the way. He said that in the last days, people will heave up, if you'll pardon me, it's even barf up for themselves teachers that will itch their, what their itching ears want to hear. And man, if there's any sin you want to do, I guarantee you, you can go on the Internet and find some guy that thinks he's an expert, twist things around until you feel like you have permission to do something God told you not to. You go, yeah, but this doctor, blah, blah, blah. And oh, I know it's says, and the moment a guy says, well, you know, these 11 scriptures look like this, but they're actually the opposite. Well, then I think already we've got a problem. How about you? So this guy's an expert more than the word of God. And the reason I say that is, is that God's like, look, if you're going to follow me, I want you to know the purity of my word and not just what somebody else says about it. Not just that you get so busy trying to do stuff to make me happy, but rather just follow me and hear my voice. And then you'll be amazed at how prosperous you become. In other words, you're going to set your hands to things. You know, I don't know if you, any of you, I, I think some of you, I, I fairly well know this, but the moment was you needed to give counsel to someone and you open your mouth and scripture came out and they're inside you go like, oh man, that was so cool. Because there are sometimes you give advice and you're like, oh, I hope that was good. Lord, was that good? If not, remove it from their head. But those moments where you just know the Lord's like, here's the verse and it's so appropriate and you're laying it out and they're like, oh, that's exactly what I needed to hear and you know the word is active and living and sharper than a double-edged sword and never returns empty and you hear that and you're like, oh God, thank you. And you watch that same thing. Now, where we came from in the States, the police station, every time they got a suicide call, would actually send them to us. And we never once saw a person commit suicide. Praise God. That's by the grace of God. But we saw such great things happen that it was so beautiful to watch that even the people that didn't know Jesus at that point, though many of them were coming to Christ, they actually wanted to come and find out why. And there was a guy that was sort of a, a knuckle breaker for Hell's Angel who gave his life to Christ. And then all of a sudden the sheriff started showing up because they were no longer arresting him every day. And they wanted to know why. So they showed up at the one place they knew we would be, church. And then we started having the sheriff ministry. And that was the one time I always said, oh, Lord, don't let some crazy guy come in here now. Because the, there was a time when it seemed like half the church, everybody was packing. You know? I'm like, what kind of church is this? They're like, we'll never tell you what. And they were guys that were like, they need Jesus too, man. And the point of it is, is look, at, I don't know where God is wanting to send you. I do know what's in the people that are in your life right now. But I do know this. He's going to use you to touch people in a way I can't necessarily because that's why he puts you in their life and not me. But if you want to be prosperous, prosperous in it, you want to see God's will done, just follow him, walk, and listen. 
And don't get so caught up in going, I just have to do something for God right now. But look at when he says do something, do it. Because the beautiful thing is it says in Philippians 2, it is God who works within you to will to do and to do for his good pleasure. In other words, God will actually give you the desire and he'll actually do it through you. Never forget, you are not the carpenter. You're the tool. You're not the artist. You're the paintbrush. Just let him use you. So that takes us to the last of these. So look at He's promised authority. He's promised victory. He's promised prosperity in all of this. But the one that we've missed is in verse 5. And this is why all of these things are possible. In verse 5, I remind you, it said, no man will ever be able to stand before you all the days of your life. That was the victory. But notice what it says after that. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. More than just authority and victory and prosperity, I would cash all of those in in a heartbeat as long as this one were available to me. And that is intimacy. My God is not some distant sicko up on space somewhere watching us like we're the new comedy channel. He didn't create me for his entertainment. He created me for fellowship. Please hear this. In Colossians, it says, by, for by Him and for Him all things were made. You were made for Jesus. You were not just made by Him. You were made for Him. You ever get yourself a present? It's your birthday or it's Christmas or something and you're like, you know, I'm not too sure. I'm pretty sure no one's going to be able to get this for me. I'm going to get it for me for Christmas. And you know it's the one thing that you'll open up. You'll know what it is already, but you're like, I know this is exactly what I want. That's what God did, and He made you. Did you realize that? He wanted to give Himself a present, and He made you. And He knew you'd have a will. You'd be self-reliant and self-determining to run from Him. But he also already had a plan to pay for that. And he sent Jesus to die on the cross so all of it could be paid for. And rose again to give you a brand new life. And because of that, beloved, we can follow him and know that his plan is to be intimate. Not just distant or a boss, but to be the friend that sticks closer to than a brother. To be our first love to be the one that will never leave us nor forsake us and never, ever, ever change his mind. So Joshua acts it out. Let's read through the rest of the chapter to close it out. Joshua commanded the officers of the people. And by the way, in verse 9, he says, Have I not commanded you? The third, by the way, of these times, he'll say this. He says it in 6, 7, and then here in 9. Be strong and of good courage. Each time he adds a little of something. Last time he tells us, by the way, notice in very courageous, but in verse 9 he says, Be strong and of good courage and adds... Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's no reason to be afraid. I'll always be with you. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, and he said, Pass through the camp. Command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourself, and within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land in which the Lord your God has given you to possess. Finally, there's a three, two and a half cru- uh, tribes here. Look in verse 12. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Anasha, Joshua, spoke. And they said, Remember the word in which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, 
The Lord your God has given you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brothers armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he gave you. And he has given, and they also then have taken possession of the land in which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Okay, do this as we close this up. Would you um, flash, Lauren, that map again so we can get a little idea of what's going on here? Because I don't want you to miss this. See, the point is back all the way in Numbers 32. And in Numbers 32, Israel, now this, by the way, if you can follow, this is the Dead Sea. And then there's a little body of water up here. That's the Sea of Galilee. And there's a little line in between them. And that's the Jordan. Now, that, the reason it's called Jordan, interestingly enough, is because ultimately the tribe of Dan will go up north here. Dan means judgment. And so it's called Yordan, which means flows from judgment or out of judgment. And so the reason I say that is, is that there actually it becomes a natural border on there on this side. And on this side, there were a couple giant kings, Sihon and Og. Now, doesn't that just sound like a giant's name, Og? Well, whether you like it or not, that's what his name was. And ultimately, what happens is they get victory over these two kings and their land. Well, two of these, two and a half of these tribes, these tribes in Numbers 32, and that's, by the way, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, look and they say, you know what? This land's really good. We like this. We don't want to cross the Jordan. We don't even have to go over there. This is good enough for us. And Moses kind of smells a rat. He's like, do you guys just not want to fight the battle? Is that what you guys are doing here? And so Moses kind of flushes it out. So what he says is, I'll make you a deal. If you guys are willing to go, you two and a half tribes, you can go and leave your wives and your stuff and your kids here, but you guys, the men of that that are ready to fight, go and lead the battle over on the other side of the Jordan, and you fight, and you get all that land. If you still want this land over here, you can have it. I think that's a pretty good test, for which the guys are like, yeah, we're good, we're good, let's do it. So, what Joshua does here is he actually calls them on it. He says, hey, you guys, Reuben, Reuben, you know, Gad, half tribe of Manasseh, you guys made this promise you would lead us into battle over there and then go back and claim your land. So go ahead and leave your kids, and that's where they're at right now, is the land that would be for those two and a half tribes. So likely you can leave your wives, your children, you know, your stuff here, but you said you were leading into battle, I'm holding you to it, you guys are doing that, right? And they said, all right, we're going to do it. You said it, we'll do it. And then it ends with these verses. It says then in verse 16, So they answered Joshua, All that you command us we will do, and whatever you send us we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you. Which, of course, twice God's made very clear is the case, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. It's the fourth time, by the way, Joshua is being told that in this chapter. Three times by God and the last time by these two and a half tribes. Now, beloved, hear me as we go to prayer. Can these promises be for you? Can God tell you today, if you're willing to follow me, trust me, walk with me, I'll give you authority to accomplish my will, not yours. 
I fully believe that. No one will be able to stand against you. And that doesn't mean someone might not get in your face or react nasty or whatever. But that's not victory. See, Jesus is victory. And you can't take my victory. If I share Jesus with someone and they say no, I didn't fail. They did. They, I already have the victory. I had it the moment I said yes to Jesus. I just want to give them a choice. It's like you won the lottery and you want to share it and someone says, no, I don't want your money. They can be poor, but it's not your fault now. Hear me on this. The Lord wants you to walk out of here victorious. The Lord wants you to walk out of here with His authority that He delegates for His mission to seek, serve, and save the least, the last, and the lost. I like that. But He promises intimacy for which all of these things make sense. And with that then comes prosperity. See, I can't have peace, joy, love, or any of those things if I don't have intimacy with Him because that's where they come from. So hear me as we go to prayer. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus? I'm not talking about have you gone to church. I'm not asking you if you've ever read a scripture. The question is, have you accepted this gift of Jesus? This death on the cross on your behalf, this resurrection to make you brand new. See, because without that, you're trying to follow a stranger. That's not going to work. Who he's leading is his family, and he's, a, he's into open adoption, and he's, he's into adopting tonight. And if you're willing to accept the gift of Jesus Christ, God is willing to transform you today, place his spirit inside of you, and start revolutionizing you from the inside. The reason he's going to change the world around you is because he starts by changing the world inside of you. That's how I know he could change the world, because he's changed my world already. Have you said yes? And if you have, the question is, are you willing to walk to walk with Him. Not to shrivel up. Not to blend in. Oh, but to follow Him and watch Him bring change. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank You so much for this beautiful text. So wonderful to jump into Joshua and watch what You've done. And I thank You, Lord, that You call us to lead, but we can't lead without going somewhere. But Lord, anywhere we go that isn't following you is going to be dangerous. But on the other side of that, Lord, you call us, Lord. You call us to follow you. It's a simple command. And in following you, you have so much planned for us. And it's all for our blessing. That's the odd part of it all. It's for our blessing. That you would give us authority to accomplish things that you've set before us that are so far beyond us, we will be amazed when we watch what you do. Would you give us victory, Lord, that we don't fear the opposition? And there will be. Even Paul told us that whoever desires to live godly in you will face persecution. We'll suffer it. We can still win the race. We can still win the fight. Keep the faith. You've promised us, Lord, a prosperity beyond what the world can give one that's eternal. And Lord, I know that in heaven the only thing of value are people. And I pray that we would be able to affect the most amount. To see them brought to you and be a part of that process. I thank you above and beyond all of these things that you promise us intimacy. 
so that we could hear your voice and know you better. It's not about backing down or standing for a political movement or group, but falling in love with the God who fell in love with us. So, Lord, thank you for wanting us. Thank you, Lord, for proving it by dying on the cross to pay for us and raising from the dead. And I pray right now by the power of your Holy Spirit, if there be anyone who has yet to say yes to you, tonight would be the night where they'd say, tonight, on this night, I said yes to Jesus. And if that's you, within the sound of this voice, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree, I ask you to say at the end of it, Amen. A confident, resounding Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. Like all men, I'm a sinner. And you as a righteous judge punish all sin. But I believe that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin, tempted in every way, yet without any of his own sin to pay for, and therefore was qualified and willingly volunteered to pay my price. And on the cross, when he died, all of my, the crimes of my heart were paid so that the person that I am can be laid to rest. And just like Scripture promised, on the third day he rose again so that I could be a new creation now. One loved and adopted and cared for. One with an intimate relationship with you. And for that I say yes. Declaring Jesus as my Savior, my ransom payment, and my Lord. I give myself to you now. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, so I pray for all and any and all who have prayed that prayer tonight, that you seal that in their hearts as you pour forth your Holy Spirit into them just like you promised in Ephesians 1.13. Transform us now and make us not look like the world, but better. In Jesus' name.